0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: Well, I think there's a progression. Um, you know, for me, it started with getting positive feedback and having my identity shaped and formed by the feedback of others. And, um, and then taking that feedback into writing hopefully better and better books and getting better and better feedback. But the only thing about positive feedback is there's a law of diminishing returns, mm. uh, and it doesn't mean as much the, the further you get into it. And that's kind of sad, but it's also kind of great because you, you actually struggle in the next phase with, um, okay, do you love your ego and do you love your identity <laughs> or, or do you love the work? And that's phase two where you begin to really fall in love with the craft and the process And then I actually think there's an evolution beyond phase two into phase three, where you actually begin to love the reader where, you know, you've learned the craft and you've learned the process and you've shaped your identity. And this is the path you have to go to. You can't jump right into loving the reader. It doesn't work that way. But as you, you keep going, you, you sort of play out on the sense that, okay, I know I'm a writer. I get it. You know, and everybody's told me that for so many years. I don't need any more affirmation in that category of life. And now I know I'm a good writer and I've learned the craft and I've really fallen in love with the way the structure of these things. And now, you know, with the, the kind of writing that I'm beginning to do now, I find myself thinking more and more about the reader and thinking about, well, I hope this helps them or I hope this comforts them. And
2: Don, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So I have been a really, really big fan of your work uh, ever since I came across uh, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And it, the way you construct sentences, the way you use language, and the way you tell stories resonated with me so much that I had to find out you know, what it was that was behind all of this. So uh, on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, the story, the journey, the background, and how that has led you to what you're up to and in, in writing all these amazing books?
3: Well,
1: that's a huge question. Uh, I, uh, there were about twelve questions in there. The, the, <laughs> um, I, the one was, you know, how do I construct sentences, and then, and then you want to know. I, I'm, I have no idea how to answer that question. Um, <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, I think um, I think I I fell in love with writing at a, at a pretty early age, uh, and I uh, well, just kind of fell in love with words uh, when I was naive enough to think that you could make a living doing it. And uh, I'm still naive enough to make, to think I can make a living doing it, which is why I'm doing it. I think because <laughs> it just seems to be walking on water in this day and age. Uh, but yeah, so I, I grew up in Texas and I, um, I was never good at anything. I was a terrible student. I was not good at sports. Uh, I had one year where I was pretty good at music because I devoted myself to it. Uh, and then, uh, and then, discovered writing and wrote an article for a youth group newsletter for a local church. And uh, the article uh, in that very small community got passed around, and people liked the way it was written. And so, uh, a couple of people said, "Don, you're a good writer." And that's the first time anybody ever said I was good at anything. And uh, they, you know that does something to your brain; uh, releases dopamine in your brain when you are challenged with a task and you succeed at the task and are praised by the task. And so I kept chasing that uh, sense of fulfillment for years more, just developing and developing, developing the craft and then beginning to be hopeful that someday I could be published. And then um, through a series of circumstances, uh, ended up working for a publishing company and seeing behind the scenes of how writing books works. And it wasn't as romantic as I thought. It uh the writers weren't as uh you know educated and elitist as I thought. It was really just people who were willing to gut it out and put in sometime the to tor- the torturous time to get a book done. And um and I was naive enough to think that I could actually write a full book and did so and, and it got published and then wrote another book and that one became a bestseller. So it was really just sort of a a a series of steps uh that There were so many reasons, some of it was ego, some of it was identity, much of it was ignorance and naivete, uh, but somehow it's turned into a career and and I'm so grateful for it. Hmm.
2: You know what, Um, I want to go back to even before any of this started and look at some of the formative experiences and significant moments uh, of childhood, even before that moment of being told that you were good at writing. Were there any things in particular that you think influenced
1: where you ended up today? Oh, geez, there was so much. Um, you know, growing up really poor, uh, we were, we were, uh, you know, p- borderline very poor growing up, which was extremely significant uh, and um, really, a, 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 you know, I hate to, to say that, but it was really a terrific experience. It made me very hungry. Uh, I think combined with just a naturally driven personality uh, made me want to sort of get out of the neighborhood right get out of the ghetto and do something uh, with my life uh, uh and i think that was pretty formative my dad leaving when i was a kid was formative in a negative way at first and then that was i was able to sort of redeem that if you will and make something of it and own it as part of my journey uh that was formative um and then uh growing up in Texas, uh, is formative in, uh, <laughs> in terms of the pride and sense of pride that you have. And, uh-huh. um, yeah, so there were, there were a lot of, there were a lot of things I would say, you know, it, it's every kid I think goes through struggles, uh, in growing up, growing up uh, is a very hard thing to do in our culture. Uh, it's a war, uh, over identity. And, uh, and so there were obviously painful times and seasons, but, I have an overwhelmingly uh, sort of warm and positive view of my childhood and even my high school and college years. I do – I tend to be be able to sort of rewrite my own story in my head, uh, which I think is a positive characteristic for all of us to learn. um, And self-edit different memories and see things from a perspective – that gives it more positivity than negativity, which has served me very well. But all that to say, um, you know, I, I, just, I couldn't, uh, I wouldn't replace my experience up till now with much of anything else.
2: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. I, I've asked this question, uh, to a handful of people in, in various forms, you know, coming from a background of being poor, uh, and growing up in that environment, how has that influenced and shaped your
1: perspective on wealth and money now? Well, that, man, that's a terrific question. Um, I think uh, I think in a couple of ways. Um, one is, um, I, you know, we live well. My wife and I live well. We, we own and operate a decently successful company. I mean, we're not making millions, but we're making a lot. And we live beneath our means. We live very much beneath our means. Um, rather than buying a big dream house, we bought a little rental property. You know, we just make decisions – Based on the idea that you don't know if you're gonna be able to eat tomorrow, which is absurd. It's just absurd if you think about it. you know and, and and so I think but I think that sense of drive, when I look at why I'm driven, it's literally like, well, we could end up poor. I mean, we, we may not be able to pay rent next month. and uh, you know even if we get our mortgage saved up for the next twelve or eighteen months that we can pay, I still feel like, well, that could expire. You just don't know. And I, you know, they did a study and I, and I, and forgive me for talking about a study without being able to cite it, but I do remember, um, they, they were looking at common characteristics of really good CEOs and they wanted to differentiate between the ones that kind of went to the next level. And, uh, what they discovered were the ones that grew up poor were able to take their companies to the next level. And I think, there's just a sense in some folks who grow up poor, uh, that, uh, you know, this thing could end and we've got to hustle if we're going to eat. And I think there's an advantage to growing up wealthy in a a good wealthy home too, because you're learning to manage money and you're learning to understand how business really works. And we grow up poor. You have to learn all that on the fly. And so there are advantages both ways. Um, but you know that's one thing about growing up poor that I think was was really very much served me. In fact, my wife and I, you know, often have a conversation. You know, would we pay for our children's education? Because nobody paid for my college, and uh, and I and I never graduated, and uh, you know it was just a struggle. And I think I think I would come to the conclusion that I actually I would want to I would want to pay for it. And but how do you enter your kids into that common struggle that served you as a kid? Uh, when, you know, they they're going to have all their needs met. They're not going to they're not going to live in the stress of a home that doesn't have any money. And um, and then the other reality is uh, most kids who grow up poor do not have my experience. They mm-hmm. do not. Uh, this doesn't happen for them. The percentages are very very low. And so um, there's also something about the kid who makes it out and who you know becomes an entrepreneur and a successful entrepreneur or a successful creative. Um, that There's just something driven about that kid, right? And, uh, and so I, I think that, that uh, there's something about the kid that gets out that we, we should pay special attention to and turn around and, cr- and try to create as much as possible both the emotional, psychological, physical, and financial path out of, the, of, out of poverty that we were blessed to have, have gone on ourselves. And, and I do sense that responsibility too as a culture. Hmm. To, to to define that path and begin broadening that path for others. You think that
2: sense of drive is something that can be learned or do you think it's inherently built into people like you because of the circumstances
1: that you grew up in? I, I think it's both. Uh, I do think it's not just circumstances. I actually think it's brain chemistry. Um, I think, uh, that certain people are their brain chemistry just makes them more driven and others, they're not as driven, and they're much more content with a simple life, which is, which is honorable, right? Uh, and, and so I do think some of it is, is, uh, is brain chemistry. But I, I think that um, things like victim mentality, which holds us back, uh, things like taking personal responsibility for yourself, things like uh, not being set back by challenges, those are all skills that we can learn no matter how driven we are. And when you really think about it, it's those skills that get you ahead. It's not the drive. Mm-hmm. The, the drive is great, but if you can just learn these kind of basic skills on how to operate your mind uh, and see the world, I think um, I think you're, you're you're much more likely to succeed. Well, we'll we'll talk about some of that through the lens of your own story.
2: Uh, you know, one of the questions that I have for you, uh, based on what you said about you know having your father leave and having sort of what seemed like a negative experience, you developed this ability to self-edit the story and turn it into something positive. And I'm really interested in how you do that in your own life, like how we do that in our lives. How can we take the stories of our lives and edit them uh, to serve us rather than sabotage yeah. us?
1: Well, one thing that, that we do uh, with, with some of our clients, we, we have a, a life planning system and, and we have a conference that allows people to create their life plan. And one of the modules that we take them through is um, we take them, we ask them to define the exceptionally high and low moments of their life and they actually put it on a grid on a piece of paper and we look at it and you see the highs illustrated on top of a line and the lows illustrated below the line and we do two exercises once we've created this grid we we sort of circle the high moments and we ask what what was so great about that and why why did you feel so impassioned or uh, happy about that season of life. And what does that say about you and how you're wired and what your skill set is and all these kinds of things. So we explore that. Then we actually look at the low moments and, you know, tragedy and failures and those sorts of things that we would identify as low moments. Um, they are the most powerful moments in our lives to shape who we are. And we, but they can either derail us if we see ourselves as a victim or if we opt out because we made a mistake. Um, Or they can can, uh, embolden and and inform us and educate us. And uh, if we circle them and say, uh, I'm going to try to find some way to redeem this thing. So if you got fired from your job, to circle that and say, hey, yes, this really sucks. And yes, it's really embarrassing. But what can I learn? What's a positive here? And a positive might be, you know what, I was in a job that uh, I didn't have the skill set to succeed. And I'm thankful to have discovered that. Um, and now I can go on a journey to find out what I'm really good at. You know, that's It takes a great deal of mental strength to do that. But I think the people who learn that as an ability, uh, they go very, very far in life because so few people can actually do that. Uh, and so that's one way of self-editing. So we begin to see our negatives as – um, a mixed bag rather than a negative. So this horrible thing happened to me and yes, it was bad, but I also got this blessing on the, on the backside of it that, uh, really helped me. And, uh, that's great for our mental health. It's great for our development. It's great for the strength of your character. And, uh, it's great. It's a great component of just succeeding. What have been the highs and lows in your life? Well, there's been a lot of them. And, and honestly, um, You know, so many of the lows, when you say that, I actually have an emotional reaction because I think to myself, they're just not lows anymore. I mean, that process actually works. And so, you know, dad leaving when I was a kid was probably the biggest one. I mean, that's a foundational low. But I remember processing that as an adult and experiencing it as this sort of grieving thing, but then circled it and said, okay, what can I do with this? and discovered, well, this gives me an, uh, an empathy and an understanding for fatherless kids. That led me to start a mentoring program. That led me just to write a book on the subject. That led the White House to call so I could be on a, a presidential task force. That led me to consulting with the Obama administration. That led the task force to uh, propose uh, several million dollars in uh, in – aiding outside organizations to reunite uh, fathers coming out of prison with their children, which would give them reason not to go back to prison, which would save taxpayers way more money than we invested in the program. Um, so, So when you say, what are the negatives? You know, how can I now see my father leaving as a negative when it led me to the to, to be able to have so much leverage and interact with, uh, so many people and have such great experiences, uh, that just otherwise wouldn't have happened. And so I, I think, but I think it's possible to take everything that happens to us and circle it and, and do that. So yes, there have been negative turns, but, um, this process, which I actually just learned from Viktor Frankl, it's not something that I created myself. It's Viktor Frankl's work uh-huh. that informs all of this. Um, it, wor- it, it works. I mean, it, it actually works to, to redeem your, your negative turns. So uh, let me ask you this,
2: as I'm listening to you say that, uh, I think about negative turns in my life. Uh, you know, I graduated from Pepperdine's MBA program, broke and unemployed and this show wouldn't have existed if I had gotten a job. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> I love that. That's but here's example. the thing yeah. at the time I could not see it that way because in the moment, I think when we experience our losses, when we experience our lows, we're so consumed by grief that we can't see that these things could actually be good. And I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, but that's, and I get it. And that's where every, you know, as, as, a, as a writer and a business person, what I do most is study story. And so I study screenplay, I study story structure. Um, I take classes on story and read every book that comes out on story structure. When you have a hero in a story, um, they have to go through what you went through when you left Pepperdine. They have to. If they don't, they're simply not qualified to to earn the title hero. Uh, they have to be broken. They have to get to their the, the absolute end of their abilities. Somebody has to come in and help them and rescue them. And so the one thing for anybody listening to this podcast to remember is that if it's really, really bad for you right now, you actually have – um, the most important ingredient of having a great story. <laughs> and, that, and in the moment, that's sort of like, uh, you know, uh, kissing your sister or whatever. You know, it just doesn't feel like very uh, – That's very, not very encouraging like, not, if you're consumed very, by grief. Thing, yeah, it's not the thing you actually wanted. It's real close, but it's not the thing you actually wanted. And so uh, – but it's just true. And so stories well-lived are enjoyed in hindsight they're not always enjoyed in the moment. Uh, They're they're often very difficult in the moment. And I know, you know, this morning I went into my writing shed in the backyard and I got started on the new book and just had a terrible experience. I mean, it's just a terrible experience. It was just so unbelievably frustrating. I couldn't get the words that I wanted. uh, You know, I showed up, but the words didn't show up. And anybody (laughs) who's ever written knows that feeling. And you feel so out of control because – You know, if writing a book were as easy as climbing Mount Everest, there would be a lot more books in the world. Uh, It's just not – the problem is the mountain keeps moving. You can't Uh find it. And, uh, you know, you can show up every day but you just don't know if if the words are going to be there and yet – where are the words the words are in my head shouldn't i be in complete control of this and so you begin to self-doubt and you think this is gonna um, the words will never come back so i might as well sell the house and the car and, and all that uh, that is but then i remembered i stopped and remembered you know i've written a lot of books and this happened with every single one of them and every single one of them is now in print and people are reading them so stop whining go for a walk. <laughs> And come back and see if the words are there yet. And but uh, the words will show up out in that riding shed. They will be there. The question is, are you going to be there when they're there? And uh, and uh, so I just have to remember that that's part of the the journey, the fulfilling journey of doing something difficult, uh, demands that we go through uh, dark valleys.
2: Wow. Uh, it's funny cause I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book. Uh, I just got my first book deal with a publisher and I can relate to that process. We're going you know through
1: exactly an, how
2: that, Oh, works. we're going through an outline and I'm working with a writing coach and every day we do it, I, we make a little dent in the outline and I'm like, why do I feel like I'm making no progress
1: here? Oh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It, it, it yeah, you never feel like you got anything done.
2: Well, I, I do want to talk about, um, you know, writing a little bit later in the conversation cause I want to hear your perspective on, on a few different things there, but, um, One of the things that you said earlier was that you had this sense of naivety that you could make a living as a writer, and you still have it um, after having been wildly successful. So two questions. One, how do we bring about that sense of naivety in our own life, and how do you maintain it after you've already been successful?
1: Yeah, I was just thinking about that uh, the other night as I was falling asleep, and um, I just thought of how how kind of miraculous it is that, you know, we have have, uh, six... Uh, members of our team who get paid pretty well. And, um, uh, you know, so every day I've got to wake up and make X number of thousand dollars or lay somebody off. And, you know, writers don't make that kind of money. And so to be able to just go, wait, how did we, how did we build this? Like, I'm just a creative writer, right? How did we build this? And um, I think the the answer that I came to, and I don't want to give anybody the EBGVs here, but I, I just had to thank God and just go, God, thank you. Like, thank you for. I mean, I don't know why you chose me to be able to make a living doing this, but I'm very, very grateful because there are so many people who want this. But I, I also think that. So I think that's a part of it. And even Stephen Pressfield in the in the War of Art would say there's this mysterious connection with God and the writer, mm-hmm. and God just gives you the words. And I think that's a little bit true for business people too. Um, you know, control is largely an illusion. And, um, and so there is this part of us says, Hey, I'm going to take my responsibility, but I need something else to show up and help me through this. So I think something else showed up for me. Uh, I don't, I don't recall doing anything that deserved that except, uh, that I just sort of always believed it would. Uh, and the older I get, the more I realize, I think that was less me and more it. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I, I'm, I think I'm more humbled by that experience, uh, the older I get. Um, but I do think, um, uh, that there is something to be said for that that knowing that is in you that you are significant and that the world needs to hear what you have to say and that um, uh, that they will be better for having heard it. And there are people who wonder if that's true and then there are people who know that that's true. And even the ones who know that that's true still doubt it sometimes, but there's a deeper sense. It's not even cerebral. It feels like it's coming from the middle of your chest where you just know it. I think that that is a legitimate knowing. And I've talked to many, many people and not everybody has it. Not everybody experiences it. But to me, the person who has that is much more likely to make it and and whatever that is that I'm trying to define here, makes no rational sense. So your faith is actually in some in something that's completely intangible, uh, and yet what, whatever that is 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 a factor in so many people that I've known uh, who have uh, succeeded. I, I, I did a series of interviews with some uh, wealthy business people and uh, executives, politicians, and. I was working on a book that I never, I decided not to write, but one of the people that I talked to was Pete Carroll, who coaches the Seattle Seahawks. And I, I sort of ended each interview with the, with the same question. I I said, did you know when you were very young that you were special, that there was something special about you? And every other person I interviewed sort of hemmed and hawed and tried to get out of it (laughs) because it's a very arrogant thing to admit. And Pete was the only one who just – just his knee-jerk reaction was just absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I said absolutely. He said absolutely. Uh, there, he said I knew it. I knew it. I mean he had to have a doctor's note to play football because he didn't weigh enough to play football. He was too, he was too short and thin. And, but he said, Don, I just knew that I was the greatest player on that field even though, even though there's no actual <laughs> <national laughs> evidence, I mean, if he got hit and knocked down or something, he would just see that as an anomaly. Like, wow, that guy just hit the greatest player. Wow. The greatest player just got knocked down. That's weird. Let's go again, you know? And, uh, he just kind of knew it. And, and yet when you, inter- when you talk to Pete, he's one of the most humble, other centered people I've ever met. And so it's not that it makes you arrogant. There's just a deep sense of knowing. And, um, I think that's a critical factor. And there are people literally listening to this podcast who know exactly what I'm talking about. And I would affirm that I think that's legitimate. I think that there's something there. And I think if it's there, you have a responsibility to obey it and bring whatever it is into the world uh, that you're trying to bring into the world.
2: You think everybody has that knowing? No. No, I don't.
1: Right. I don't. I, and, and, and I even asked that of Coach Carroll. I said, "Does everybody have this?" And he goes, "Absolutely not. Look around." But <laughs> <laughs> well, his words were, "No, not everybody is special. Just look around." <laughs> I thought, "Well, that's a little bit, a little bit, uh, I don't know, deflating of a thought." Sure, but no. But I, I will say this: I think, um, I think, just because some people have it doesn't make them better than anybody else. That's not what I'm saying here. In fact, I would even say that if you have it. That you have the responsibility to serve, uh, and you have the responsibility to lead. And anybody who's stepped into leadership knows that when you step into leadership, you get stepped on, you get criticized, you get laughed at, you get ridiculed, you get mocked. I mean, it, it's a really inverse sort of thing. And and so you know this—it's not like this. This doesn't come at a cost. This isn't a lottery ticket win here. Uh, It's a responsibility and it's it's a humbling responsibility. I do think you're special. I think you're set apart. I think you're different than other people. But that doesn't mean that you're better than them. In fact, leaders who have that sense of specialness and who interpret it as though it's about them and not about serving, those are people who end up becoming villains. And um, they also have the sense of being special. But because they interpreted it as being about them, we don't like those people. Um, and they do a lot of harm to society. And so, uh, it's, it's in that it's just a fine little difference between the two, but if somebody who has it and realizes this has been given to me to serve Hmm. and to sacrifice uh, that person, uh, will be chosen. I mean, it's just like magic. People sense it and they choose them to lead. Okay
2: this brings up a couple of questions for me and it's because I'm wrestling with this section of my book about defining moments, uh, Mm -hmm. in our lives. And I'm interested, uh, in hearing why you think certain people don't obey that calling or take responsibility to lead, even though they're chosen
1: mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. I think fear is a big part of it. You know, I mean, if you own up to that sense of responsibility, uh, or if you own up to that sense that you're special you are then responsible for that sense that you are special and imagine believing that you are special and getting to the end of your life and not having done anything um, that would be heartbreaking or not having it uh, fulfilled or, or verified is the word that I'm looking for hmm. and so I think some people they sense it they, they never get away from it. It, it it haunts them that there's something special but uh, they would rather not find out. they would rather say oh that 's just a stupid thing that i 'm experiencing or feeling um, i don 't have to act on that because uh if they did you know it, it would just be harder to take the chance mm-hmm. and so uh, another reason that that uh, leadership and um this kind of service is there 's just so little competition uh because um, so many people, one, not everybody has it, and two, so many people are too afraid to act on it. Hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons we have so many bad leaders because the, the people who have that sense that they're special and are really good, you know, genuinely good people, and we're not perfect. We all have mixed motives in this life, but, but for the most part, you know, we, we know how to do good, and uh, those people don't step up.
2: funny. I think about the fact that, you know, I chose not to go pay off student loan debt, uh, and get a real job and do this instead when you talk about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I wonder though, if, if there wasn't part of you that sensed, um, that, that that's not the path for somebody who, who has this kind of calling, uh, in my religious upbringing, we would call this calling, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, I wonder if you didn't sense that that wasn't a waste and you knew I I just can't go that route. That's not that's not what's for me.
2: Yeah, I I, kind of did. I mean, I I, I remember pretty much the day I caught my first wave as a surfer was kind of it. That was the moment my life got divided into two distinct halves. And of course, that completely altered the trajectory of where I was going to go.
1: That's awesome. I love that.
2: Um, you know, one of the things that I, I've heard you mention a handful of times in our conversation, and I even get the sense uh of from reading your books is religious undertones and, you know, faith in God, and I'm really interested uh in hearing about how religion and spirituality have shaped your perspective on the way you tell stories and and you know, kind of the way you live your life.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been an enormous part of it. I mean, I was a diehard uh religious conservative uh probably until 18 or 19. I mean, I was raised in that environment. And then as I got older, um, began to think more objectively. I began to think not just what I was taught to think. I began to see things from multiple camera angles, which the, the environment that I grew up in saw that as threatening, um, because they gave us the answers and we're supposed to repeat the answers. And so, you know, but, uh, I'm so grateful for having learned the narrative uh, I believe enormous chunks of that narrative to this day, but I don't believe them in the same way. Um, I, the, the people that I grew up with, you know, they viewed sort of the Christian narrative uh, loosely taken from the Bible as just absolute scientific fact. And I've, I've grown to believe it uh, even though I'm fully willing to admit I can't prove it and we might in fact be wrong. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, and yet uh, this is what I, I, I believe it all the same. And really, it feels like a belief that's choosing me. And yet we we may be wrong, I, you know. But I, I I will go so far as to say I'm absolutely convinced that something like that narrative is true. Um, and that the basics of that narrative are there is a God who created us who is now separated from us for for, for some reason, mm. and that that if this follows the narrative that is ingrained in us uh that we see echoed throughout almost every story you hear um then there will be a resolution to this to this conflict and it will there will be a a a successful ending to all of this so that's a narrative i i actually hold to and believe and um i think i think it uh it drives everything I do. It drives the way I run my company. It drives the kind of books I'm willing to write. It drives uh, the way I interact with my wife. It drives, it, it drives this stuff. You know, I was just reading a book. Uh, I, I can't even remember the name of it. I just bought it last night on my Kindle. But it, but it was all about um, how it's okay to be fake and how there really is no truth anyway. Therefore, just create your own identity, be it online or on Facebook or whatever. As a way of becoming the person that um, that you'd like to become, and I, and, I, and and it's actually a very interesting point if you think about it. Um, however, I, the more I read the book, uh, the sadder it made me uh, that this idea that I mean, I totally understand that probably none of us listening to this conversation have a f- have a really firm understanding what truth actually is. We think we do, but we don't. Uh, and I get that, but that doesn't mean there's not a truth out there. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so I hope that we can, through deductive reasoning and the principles of logic, uh, go on a lifelong journey of figuring out what that truth is and quickly admitting when we're wrong and moving more and more out of the darkness and toward the light. This book seemed to have no sense of darkness and no sense of light and, and I, and so that made me grateful for the narrative that I learned, albeit as a fundamentalist, um, the narrative that I learned as a kid.
4: Mm.
2: Let me ask you this. One of the things that you said was that you uncovered the sense of fulfillment when somebody said, Don, you're a good writer. And I have to say, one of the things that definitely has kept me going is that I get good feedback and positive feedback on what I do as an interviewer, uh, and I'm interested in how people start to uncover that sense of fulfillment in their own lives.
1: Well, I think there's a progression. Um, you know, for me, it started with getting positive feedback and having my identity shaped and formed by the feedback of others and, um, and then taking that feedback into writing, hopefully better and better books and getting better and better feedback. But the only thing about positive feedback is there's a law of diminishing returns mm. Uh, and it doesn't mean as much the, the further you get into it. And that's kind of sad, but it's also kind of great because you, you actually struggle in the next phase with, um, okay, do you love your ego and do you love your identity <laughs> or, or do you love the work? And that's phase two where you begin to really fall in love with the craft and the process. And then I actually think there's an evolution beyond phase two into phase three where you actually begin to love the reader. Where you know you've learned the craft and you've learned the process and you've shaped your identity, and this is the path you have to go to. You can't jump right into loving the reader. It doesn't work that way. But as you you keep going, you you sort of play out on the sense that okay, I know I'm a writer. I get it. You know, and everybody's told me that for so many years. I don't need any more affirmation in that category of life. And now I know I'm a good writer, and I've learned the craft, and I've really fallen in love with the way the structure of these things. And now you know with the, the kind of writing that I'm beginning to do now, I find myself thinking more and more about the reader and thinking about, well, I hope this helps them or I hope this comforts them and, and I have a suspicion that this is when work really gets good. Uh, I mean, really, I mean, you know, really good. And, um, I don't know that, that that, that's true, but, uh, I think the more, the more we can, you know, I, I think that's a path and I think it's a, a natural progression. And, um, and who knows what's on the other side of that, right?
2: Okay. So that raises a couple of questions. Uh, one is, you know, as your identity is shaped by positive affirmation and feedback, how do you not get so caught up in it that you lose yourself in the process? And, you know, it's interesting that you think about, uh, you know, I hope this will help the reader. How do you maintain that sense of hoping you're helping somebody without, Necessarily seeking their validation in the process because I feel like validation would ruin it, or well, seeking well, validation yeah, would ruin yeah. it. Yeah,
1: well, you're not really seeking validation, but you're definitely looking for it, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think well, a couple of things. One is we are shaped by the validation and the criticism. There's no escaping it. You, you know, anybody who is creative and who puts themselves out there as a writer, a songwriter, a painter, whatever, uh, and reads a bit of criticism there's no possible way that that's not going to shape you. And <laughs> there's just no possible way. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons I don't actually read a lot of criticism. And when somebody, you know, every once a month, somebody will tweet or write some open letter to me or something. And, um, I don't, I don't read it. And, uh, one reason is, you know, you wrote an open letter, so it's not like this is done, you know, in a kind, considerable, considerate way. Uh-huh. Uh, no matter how nicely you say it, it's the point is to publicly uh, criticize, and so um, I don't read much of that stuff anymore. I, my critics are editors at publishing companies, and thinkers, and business people, and pastors, and people I trust, and so I get criticism there. And one of the reasons I don't want to read that criticism is um, if it's if it's intended to. So much of it is intended to harm you, mm-hmm. and. Bottom lines, it just does. It actually does harm you. So you know why throw yourself out there in a in a field and let people shoot arrows at you? Um, It's not going to help your work, Uh, or you're going to become bitter and all this sort of stuff. So I I think there are people. I've heard writers say, "Oh, it doesn't affect me," and I I just absolutely don't believe that. I, I, I heard an interview with a former president whose approval rating was really dismal, and he said, "You know, it just doesn't affect me. I don't I don't listen to that." And I thought, this is a man who's not in touch with his true self. You know, how in the world? What you're saying is um, that you are um, that your mind is so incredibly depraved that the opinions of other people don't matter. Well, that's <laughs> that's not what he meant, but it's exactly what he said. Uh-huh. And and luckily, we know that's not true. It, it did affect you. You're just not in touch with the fact of of how it did affect you. So I think we are shaped. We are definitely shaped by the opinions of other people and. We're just like Pavlov's dog. If we, if we do something and people feed us for it, we salivate all the more for it, and it begins to shape our personality. Um, I think there's an evolution when it comes to criticism of you know being able to get to the point where you can turn the other cheek is a multi-year process. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't come naturally. It takes practice. Uh, Gandhi had to learn it. Martin Luther King had to learn it. Uh, everybody who's ever served as president is, is the most hated person in the country while they're president. Even if 55% of people love them, 45% of people hate them. So, you know, if you can't turn the other cheek, you can't lead. So, one, one perspective on criticism is uh, that anybody who's criticized is being given an opportunity to learn to turn the other cheek, which is the difference between a great leader and a poor leader. Uh, and, and so I, I now see criticism as, as a little bit of that. It's the, op- it's the opportunity to learn and grow and, and try to turn the other cheek and move on. And then of course there's criticism that's very fair and very, very valid. You just have to own that and say, man, they're right. I hate the fact that they're right, but dead gum at the right. <laughs> and, uh, I need to change because they, they pointed this out. Wow.
2: Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. And, um, there's a couple of questions actually that came from lines in the book. You know, I mean, I, I underlined in, you know, so much and highlighted so much of your book. Um, and I have these passages. And I was like, okay, these are questions that I just want to ask you based on, on you know, the way these things were worded. But I love this. You know, we don't want to be characters in a story because characters have to move and breathe and face conflict with courage. And if life isn't remarkable, then we don't have to do any of that. We can be unwilling victims rather than grateful participants. And I guess, you know, the question is, why do people choose to be
1: unwilling victims as opposed to grateful participants? And if so, oh, how wow. do they shift it? It's such, it's such a fantastic question. Um, well, let's talk about what a victim is. A, a real victim, as defined by some psychologist friends of mine, Henry Cloud and John Townsend, a real victim is a person who has no ability to get out of their situation. They are truly being oppressed. They don't have a way out. That isn't us in almost any circumstance. We can get out. So the question that you're asking is, why don't we? Why don't we get out? Um, we can. We can, Somebody uh, at replied me on Twitter the other day and complained about something, and it was a pretty strong complaint. I can't remember what they complained about, but um, you know. And I just thought, well, why don't you just un, why don't you just unfollow me from Twitter? <laughs> you're in control of this whole situation here, and but the reality is. Um, Being a, choosing to identify as a victim when you're actually not a victim, because you can get out of it, you can change your circumstance, but choosing to identify as a victim gives you a great deal of power. You don't have power over somebody if you're a victim, because they're the oppressor. And so you can suck energy into yourself, you can do the woe is me thing, you can say look how, you know, if you really want to hurt somebody, if you really want to put somebody away pretend to be a victim and accuse them of uh, being an oppressor and culture will turn on them. So you've just, you've just landed a punch on your enemy in the strangest, most roundabout way. And uh, the other thing that being a victim does, let's just not even talk about society. Let's just talk about you as an individual or me as an individual. You know, if I, um, if I, uh, you know, play the victim as it relates to writing this next book and just kind of wallow on the floor and say, it's too hard and I've lost it and blah, blah, blah. What does that free me not to do? It gives me an excuse to not write the book, right? It gives me, it gives me this, this reason, this justifiable reason that I don't have to go and do this risky, hard thing. So there again, victimhood gives me power. And I think the, the real conundrum of, self-identifying as a victim is um is that uh you think you're the weak one but you're actually making a play to be the strong one and uh some of the some of the most damage done in society has been done by false victims Hmm. now the other thing is you know i recently spoke to a group of um a people group who is sometimes marginalized and oppressed in america and we were there for two days and I was part of a kind of a symposium where we were talking back and forth to each other about different things. And I, I carefully gave this speech at the end of the, of the, our time together and basically just said, look, you know, Mohandas Gandhi was a victim. He was abused. He was a legitimate victim, but he'd never looked at himself in the mirror and thought of himself as a victim. He thought of himself as a conqueror. Martin Luther King was a legitimate victim. he never looked at himself in the mirror and thought of himself as a victim. Uh, Nelson Mandela, in prison for 30 years, was a legitimate victim. But he never looked at himself in the mirror and thought of himself as a victim. And here's the thing. As we study stories, which is what my whole staff does all the time, there isn't a heroic character who self-identifies as a victim, even if they are a victim. So if you really want to live a heroic journey, you cannot – or I'm sorry. You must fight the tendency that we all have to look at ourselves in the mirror and think of ourselves as a victim. Uh, You will not have a heroic journey or a heroic life or a heroic experience in life if you do that.
2: Hmm. Wow. So uh, this is another line from the book. You know, I I was going through my Kindle highlights and these are the few that just stood out immediately. Uh, This is one of my favorite ones. These polar charges, these happy and sad things in life are like colors God uses to draw the world. And I just love the way you use metaphor. Um, You've got this, you know, the way you construct sentences just sings. And I'm really interested uh, in hearing how, you know, we can take the stories that we're living and infuse this into our work.
1: Well, in in terms of writing, I think I've realized... Recently and I didn't know it maybe until this last year, but um, you know I, I I grew up playing the tuba it's embarrassing to say, but I grew up playing so the did I. tuba oh good awesome a fellow tuba player <laughs> um, so you know the struggle <laughs> but um i uh and then i went to I went to my first year of college my first semester on a, a music scholarship and um, and I wanted to be a composer and and then I, it, it just got where this just isn't sensible. I'm not a good enough musician to go play for a symphony or something like that. And you have to wait for somebody to die as a tubal player. Yeah. You kind of have to wait for somebody to die. And you, in the meantime, you're carrying around a 45 pound (laughs) instrument everywhere you go. So it wasn't (laughs) for me. I went to business school instead. But, um, when I became a writer, I found, I found that, um, that sense that I was composing again. And really what a composer does is they are giving people an emotional experience. So a composer has a, a sense of, you know, they need to be jolted right here. And, they, and then they need to be spoken to softly right here. And they need to be, this tension needs to be built up. And then this tension needs to be resolved. Because when we're listening to a symphony, we're really listening to um, just a, somebody manipulating our emotions. That's what's happening. And of course, we love it. So when I, when I finally started writing books, that's. I finally felt like that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm composing. I'm, I'm taking people through, uh, uh, an, 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 an experiential sort of emotional ride. And, um, and now I, when I, when I write, uh, I, I think of it the same way. I think this is just composing music and this part needs a little bit more tension and this part needs some resolution and this part needs a little more drama and this part needs, you know, on and on and on i'm i think much more like that as a writer than i do uh you know kind of an outliner or structuring uh, uh words uh and well what i'll normally do is sort of get an outline there and then i i write music over the top of it huh. of the outline so the structure is still there but you're having to you know word things in such a way so uh, to me it's 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 it, when i'm when i'm Writing, I'm feeling the words. I'm feeling where they're taking, what what the reader is feeling, and I know full well that uh, you know a significant percentage of readers are going to laugh right here, and then they're going to cry right here, and it's intended to to drive, uh, hopefully to drive a point home. So that's sort of the the you know it's it's an intuitive process, but that's kind of how I think about structuring structuring actual sentences. So this is another
2: one of those lines from the book. Um, if the point of life is the same as the point of a story, the point of life is character transformation. And the question I have is, uh, is a character transformation something that needs a catalyst or is it something that can be brought about by our own will? Because I it's, feel like it's always the byproduct of a
1: catalyst, at least
2: with the people I interview.
1: It, it, it's true in story that it's always because of a catalyst. Uh-huh. And, and it cannot be done by you looking in the mirror saying, I am going to transform. <laughs> just, you know, if you had a, uh, if you had a character, let, let me give you an example. If you had a character who at the beginning of your story, and we're, we're speaking fictional here, but this character needed to lose uh, 25 pounds or something like that. Uh, and at the beginning of your story, they woke up and they just said, I'm tired of being overweight. And they walk into the bathroom, look at the mirror and said, I'm going to lose 25 pounds. And then the music starts and, they join a gym and here goes the story, you know, you would lose the entire audience. Uh, And the reason is they would know subconsciously that's not how it works. Uh, what, so what screenwriters do is they put in a device called an inciting incident. It's something that forces the character to take action. And so instead of that story shaping up that way, it would be You know, the person needs to lose 25 pounds and they're at a market one day and they run into or they see from across the produce section as they stand there holding a box of donuts, the high school crush that they had 10 years ago. And she is a yoga instructor now and uh, she is going to be at the high school reunion six months from now. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? We have to throw something in the character's life that forces them to take action or they lose a bet. And because they lost the bet, they have to finish a marathon in under however many uh, hours and minutes.
2: This seems like a story only two people who played the tubo would come up with.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly It's not a very exciting story. (laughs) Uh,
2: Because we weren't uh, that cool in high school.
1: No, not at all. And so – but the great lesson that we can learn in life is um, that the only way characters change is to be – is to go through pain. That's it. There's no other way. You can't – characters cannot change unless they go through pain. But you as a human being are not going to do that on your own. So what you have to do is you have to decide, I'm not going to take this job to pay off my, my college education from Pepperdine. I'm going to instead start a podcast and a side business and try to be a writer and a speaker. That is a decision to go through pain, as you well know. <laughs> yeah. And what's what's great about that, though, is it's the decision also to transform, to become something great and uh the other route would not have done that for you. It's just too easy. And so uh, – and yet when you chose not to take that job, you were forced to daily get up and take action and worry about where your mortgage was going to come from and where, where your rent was going to come from, where your food was going to come from, what your next podcast. But it's that tension that you daily live within that um, you know, is going is to produce a, a transformed person five or ten years from now. And my guess is if you're wired that way, you're just going to do it again. You're going to make some other decision, uh, maybe to hire somebody or to rent a building and uh, hire a staff. And that means you're in it. I mean, you're in the war at that point. You're waking up every day and you got to make money. <laughs> you know, And that's going to put you in the struggle. And, uh, you know, you talk to the greatest leaders. You talk to Winston Churchill. You talk to uh, uh, Mother Teresa. You, you talk to these great leaders. Uh, you know, here's – Teddy Roosevelt's a great example. I'm sorry, Franklin Roosevelt's a great example. Franklin Roosevelt was an arrogant punk kid in the Navy who believed firmly that he was had the right to become president. He, would, he was insubordinate to his leadership in the Navy. He worked a little bit in the Eisenhower building across the street from the White House, and he would look out on it every day and he just knew he deserved it. His uncle had been president. He deserved it. He would have been a horrible president, an absolute horrible president. And um, the greatest thing that happened to him was that he got polio. And when he got polio, he lost the use of his legs and he couldn't walk uh, without the help of of other people. And, of course, he gave up on any kind of political career. He went to Georgia and he bought a a piece of property with a hotel on it that was near some mineral springs that were said to to be a cure for all sorts of uh, diseases. And of course they weren't, but he, he thought they were. So he bought this property and, and he, he swam in the ponds every day. And then he began to invite kids with polio up to the property. So this kid, this place was for years. This is what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. And kids with polio were all around him. And he fell in love with these kids and he, he learned what it meant to be poor and oppressed and marginalized. And he learned what it felt like to be weak. And it humbled him and later in his life he would run for governor of New York uh, out of a wheelchair and he won and then he ran for president and he won and he and he served longer than any other president in the history of this country and he arguably might be our best president in the history of this country because and you know the new deal all this sort of stuff came under FDR and if he wouldn't have had a compassion for those who are marginalized and hurting he would never have been a great man and You know, to me, that's a really beautiful thing about story that we can take a look at the hardship that we get ourselves into often on purpose and say, but this is going to make me a great man. This is going to make me a great woman. And so I choose this path.
2: Hmm. Well, this has been amazing, Don. Uh, I could sit here and talk to you all day.
1: I've been I've enjoyed this conversation so much.
2: Uh, so I'm going to wrap with my final question, which is how we close all our interviews. And, uh, it's gonna be really interesting to hear what you have to say about this. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Mm. You know, I think, um, I think the rarest quality that we see is, uh, sincerity and I think anybody who does anything sincerely um, with no mixed motive is uh is is unmistakable. I don't think we easily forget that person, and uh, uh, it's just so rare because we do live in a bit of a Darwinian uh, framework where it's a bit doggy dog. Um, Luckily, we live in a country where we have enough provisions that it doesn't have to get brutal. Um, so for somebody to be so sincere that they would give up their stake, uh, I think, is a, rare, is a rare quality. Yeah, sincerity.
2: Well, uh, this has been poetic. Uh, one of those conversations I could probably listen to multiple times over and over again, and I probably will.
1: Well, I'm grateful. I'm grateful.
2: Well, I I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share all of this with our listeners at The Unmistakable Creative. I think you're going to find that they're going to really,
1: really love you. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, if there's anything I can do to serve you guys, let me know. And uh, for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard,
2: the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.